Um, I, I remember vividly going to work and looking out the window of our apartment. There was a marquee with the time and temperature on it and get up to go to work and it was dark and it would be 30 or 35 below and come home at 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon and it's starting to get dark and it is up to 10 below or 5 below and it would cycle between 30 below and zero, 30 below and zero. Welcome to the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. I've got my dad here, the Essential Craftsman. How are you doing? Good, man. Hi, guys. We're going to talk about working in different types of weather, and you've pretty much seen most that the earth has to offer in terms of... (laughs) At least North America, yeah. Before we do that, I want to give you guys a little teaser and ask how your TIG welding is going. Oh, my TIG welding. Fronius sent me, sent us a beautiful TIG welder, and Mike Smith good friend Mike Smith came down from Springfield an hour north and he's a great young fabricator high-end welder and he came down and gave me kind of a tutorial a hands-on first time in my life first time in my life running a TIG torch and the learning curve was absolutely perpendicular to a line drawn tangent to the center of the earth right I mean it was a vertical learning curve and I don't know if I made any progress but it was it was challenging and exhilarating, and I am going to learn how to do that. Well, was it different than you expected, or what surprised you about it? So, so I'm not a high-end welder, but when, that, when I'm stick welding or MIG welding, you've got some forgiveness in how much movement you can have in your hand at the end of the stick, you know, in point of contact, how much, how much, I'll say, shaking or movement you can have inside that molten pool and still have a decent look. And with the MIG gun, you have the same thing, maybe more. I mean, you have some, when you're weaving, there's some built-in latitude. It, You know, an, an accidental movement can kind of be incorporated into your pattern almost. Mm. But boy, that TIG machine, you had to be absolutely steady, left, right, forward, and back. And the distance from the work had to remain the same. If you dip uh. that, tungsten, that tungsten electrode into the work, you're done. You're stopped. So both hands have to be really steady and working together in a particular rhythm that I was oblivious mm. to. And Mike assures me I'm going to be able to get it, but it's going to take some work. Good luck with that. That's a, There's a reason that people should start with stick and MIG before they <laughs> get to TIG, I guess. Yeah, or right? you'd never take that step. I think I asked you this at the time, but just remind me, what hole is this fill, filling in your work? What okay. what type of welding or fabricating or blacksmithing will this allow you or open a door for you to do that you can't already do? I mean, you, in other words, you made it this far without TIG. What, sure. What's it going to do for you? Sure. So what it enables, what I think, a couple of things. It's going to enable me, for instance, the next time I do a really elaborate floral type gate, you know, making roses or lilies or something, the juncture, the things that you're welding together in something really delicate can be done with TIG in such a way that the weld is as beautiful as anything else, mm-hmm. or the weld can be made almost invisible. You can weld without adding any more filler material than you really need to. Mm-hmm. Can weld super thin. I mean, if, if I want to start making things out of aluminum, decorative things out of aluminum, not that a blacksmith is really compelled to do that, but you can weld aluminum beautifully. You can weld pop cans together. I don't know when I'll need to do that, but mm-hmm. so there's that piece. But just yesterday, I was making a little adaptation on a gate that I that I had installed years ago. They need that gate to lock, mm-hmm. and so I was polishing some pieces and making some fairly, 
I mean, maybe three times as big as something you would have on a keychain. Mm -hmm. So it was small and it was just mild steel, but it was polished. And I MIG welded it and I thought, wow, if I could TIG weld right now, I would just stack one of those beautiful little stacks of dimes only the the whole thing would be maybe a three sixteenths or eighth inch fillet weld mm. running right around these two pieces and never grinded or anything and it would be beautiful mm-hmm. and so it was just yesterday I thought hmm okay got to practice that yeah it maybe it's one of those things that you don't even know all the opportunities for it to be put to use until you have it kind of your arms around it that's exactly right when, once you know something it becomes part of your toolkit yeah and I guess doing small and precise work makes a lot of sense think about a, a big knife versus a scalpel or yeah, something, yeah, you know, it's like uh-huh, uh-huh. you kind of can't do certain, I should say, as work gets smaller and more precise, the bigger tools get clunkier and yeah. and less helpful. Maybe it's like that. I think it is like that. And swords, I mean, eventually I'm going to spend more time back in the blacksmith shop and swords are the compelling things. I've got to make them for all the grandkids. And to be able to TIG weld fittings together and a socket onto the back of a set of quillins or something. And I know that that's not traditional, but it would be nice to be able to do that. Great. All right. We had a comment on one of the videos and the commenter, I wish I had your name, but it was something to the effect of asking about your experience in working in all kinds of weather conditions, how you deal with it, staying comfortable and productive. I know that you, uh, you started your career in Oregon with a mild temperature. So maybe let's, bypass that and go straight to the first extreme well let's not quite bypass that because mild temperature but wet really wet and muddy oh yeah so i grew up thinking that it was normal to have mud all over you in the winter time Mm -hmm. pretty normal rubber boots yeah but when you went in at night you were usually covered with mud and then working in the woods there was a standard joke so visualize you get into the crummy and the crummy is the vehicle that picks up the logging crew and they, they live, you know, wherever they live, that they're employed by one company and they got to travel to a remote site anywhere from 10 to 100 miles from where they live, maybe. So it's like a bus? It's like, it's usually like a Suburban. Oh, wow. You know, or a crew cab pickup or something, or a van sometimes. Because it doesn't make sense for everyone to drive their trick, right. their trucks up the dirty, right. muddy road. So there's a crummy driver, he drives the crummy, and that the... the the guy who is in charge now, it may be different now. I mean, probably the, the, there's probably one or two pickups on the job, but it used to be just the crummy on the job. And then the log trucks would be coming back and forth to the site all day. Hmm. So you get on the crummy at, you know, three thirty in the morning or four o'clock in the morning so that you can be at the site when the sun cracks over the horizon, you can start working, but you're, you're driving, you're riding there in the back, trying to sleep in the pouring rain it's just pounding on that crummy and you know when you get there you're going to get out of that crummy and it's going to be in the pouring rain all day mm-hmm. and you know when you get out the brush the the brush crew the choker setters and rig and slinger are jumping off the edge of the landing down into the brush working all day and the brush is soaked and it's pouring rain mm-hmm. and there's kind of a a joke that a company would make more money if they would have a 50-gallon drum full of water on the landing. And as soon as you got out of the crummy, you would jump into the gallon, into the 50 gallons of water so you're soaked and then get out and go to work. Because otherwise, for the first half hour, you're kind of yeah. delicately trying to move through the brush without getting wet. And then by about one hour in, you're soaked and you just work. Yeah. So, so I kind of grew up understanding that dynamic that, darn it, when you're working, sometimes you're not comfortable. Yeah. And you know, back, let's say that was 40, 50 years ago, but 
there was less gravel and asphalt on roads then than there is today. (laughs) You know what I mean? I'm just thinking about mud in general. Some portion of those roads are now paved that were not. And so you're saying everybody was muddy back then. And I bet you that was absolutely the case because there was more dirt roads with less gravel and less asphalt. And so that's especially true in construction. In construction now, like we did on the spec house, sometimes there's additional money spent on the front end to gravel the site. Right. And and when I started as a carpenter in 78, that was not the case. There was not a backhoe on every job. Yeah. There were not as many gravel trucks running around. Rock was relatively more expensive. And so in construction, you were muddier here yeah. too. But in the woods, it's still muddy. I mean, the road is graveled just enough so the trucks can get in and out. And the landing in the winter becomes a sea of mud, like mm-hmm. a hat over your knees, halfway up your thighs, yeah. and the logs come in and are dropped into that landing of mud, and the chaser, who's the guy on the landing who runs out and unhooks those logs, just bails out into the middle of that sea of mud, mm-hmm. sinks, fishes down into the mud to find the choker bells underneath to unhook them with his hands mm-hmm. submerged in the liquefied mud. Yeah. It, it's just a it's a thing. So so yeah. that that is kind of where I grew up. So today, working in rain, I don't know if there's any technology that really makes that better. I mean, maybe there's better raincoats, but not much you can do. <laughs> I, I got So I'm spoiled now. I mean, coming from Las Vegas where you just kind of didn't work in the rain ever, and then moving up here self-employed, I was able to kind of coordinate that and try to be inside in the winter and outside in the summer with varying yeah. degrees of success. But I, I'm way out of shape for that now. Yeah. I, I tried Filson for work rain gear, and it's great. I mean, it's tough. And it worked okay in the woods. It was it's tinware, mm-hmm. a tin coat, tin pants, filson. It's like a cotton with wax like embedded in it, yep. and it's like very, it's very. Uh, how do you say that? It's, it's oil skin. Yeah, is it's what it used like to be called. Kind of like. oily, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's hard. It's hard cotton, and when it's cold, it gets stiff. Yeah, but it's pretty waterproof, and it, you can't wreck it. I tried that in construction. It's just too stiff and limiting. Yeah. Um, the key is to just be moving a lot, the even, key is to be even if you're wet, whatever, if you keep your, your Boy, body that, temperature That up. is so true that the way that is described is that the heat is in the work. Yeah. <laughs> if you're cold at work, just move around, start yeah. working, you'll get warm. Yeah. And it, you may not get dry, but you'll get warm. Yeah, that's right. So, oh, we were on, we were on rain gear. So you can spend a lot of money on rain gear and I think Gore-Tex is probably the best, but yeah. a tough work site destroys an expensive coat. Right. So mostly you just buy... Ch- cheap coats and thrash them and buy another cheap coat and thrash them and keep a hard hat on or in construction, a hard hat works pretty good. I mean, it's dry, yeah. you know, and it's a thing. I remember in Phoenix, you, and I'm sure in Vegas, you get so used to n- having no rain yeah. that you, you know, I would leave tools and materials and things in the back of my truck and just, cause what, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm be- separate from being stolen. Yeah. And then once in a blue moon, I would wake up and it would have rained on like 12 bags of concrete yeah. or something yeah. that I didn't want to get rain. Like maybe yeah. some electronic that happened several times. And every time I remember being just so annoyed at rain and almost yeah. entitled <laughs> to like not having rain. And, and it really just kind of, goes to show how quickly you get accustomed to the conditions you're in, number one. And number two, there's always something to complain about. <laughs> it does. And and the same thing happened to me in Las Vegas. I got wrecked for rain. I came back here and I never I never got back to the mindset that I had as a kid growing up where it didn't wet, matter if you were wet, it didn't matter if you were muddy. Yeah, exactly. All right, so talk about Wyoming. So after working in the woods here, um, you were carpentry work and sawmilling in Wyoming and that 
that place has a, a really, what do you say, a, a wide climate? What's the word to describe a... Yeah. I guess it never gets hot there, but... Well, it gets, it's kind of hot for a while. It, does, it has a short enough growing season, though, that you can be pretty confident you're not going to get a lot of heat. But it does get cold, and it's windy. Cold and windy. So what was that like? So we were in the Bighorn Basin, Powell, Wyoming. We moved from here in 1981, moved to Powell. It's hard to even describe how much I loved the Bighorn Basin and Powell, and I've often thought I shouldn't have left. It's kind of regarded, the Bighorn Basin is kind of a banana belt, sort of, they say, or at least the people that live there claim that. Oh. I don't know if it is or not, but the temperatures are a little more mild. than Probably, per, yeah. Down around Rock Springs and and um, Evanston down in there is so harsh. Yeah. And anyhow, the Bighorn Basin is not, not bad, but still, having said that, move there... Got there late summer, September maybe, and it is it's sweat it's generally sweatshirt and wool je- and uh, wool shirt and cotton pants weather until the first of November, and then you better have some snowpacks and your long johns and another layer and a coat and insulated coveralls. What, what do you mean snowpacks? Snowpack um a pack is a a big boot rubber and leather rubber on the bottom leather on the uppers with the big felt liner oh, okay. in there Got so you can put a couple pairs of socks on and in the felt liner and you're in your packs mm-hmm. and now your feet are not too bad mm-hmm. um but the and but insulated coveralls everybody was wearing insulated coveralls by thanksgiving every year because mm-hmm. it was down you know zero at night and maybe 40 or 45 during the day but then Generally starting about the middle of December or just after Christmas until about the middle of February, you better buckle up mm-hmm. because you'd get down. Um, I, I remember vividly going to work and looking out the window of our apartment. There was a marquee with the te- time and temperature on it and get up to go to work. And it was dark and it would be 30 or 35 below and come home at 3.30 or 4 in the afternoon. And it's starting to get dark and it is up to 10 below or five below, and it would cycle between wow. 30 below and zero, 30 below and zero for, hmm. oh, you know, three weeks. And that would be the limit of the really harsh weather, and the wind would be blowing. So what's the point of working and trying to frame and build? I guess you're just working inside. Can anything be done outside, or what, what type of work were you doing on work those days? Work can be done outside because, you know, remember from, from the middle of November until the end of February, it was freezing every night. Okay. It would be it would be frosty every single morning. So pouring concrete is hard. You have to you have to cover and keep the ground thawed out because you can't pour on frozen frozen ground, and you can't lay you can't do masonry in freezing. Mm-hmm. So there would be big tents, big plastic tents, even then, and canvas tents that could be erected around a structure. Oh. There was an outfit out of Lovell. The Swede was his name. Big hulking old Swedish guy smoked a big cigar. And he was kind of the local masonry guru in the Bighorn Basin at the time. And he would have three or four or five young guys working. And they would be laying brick right through the bad weather with space heaters blowing everywhere inside these big canvas wow. and visqueen tarps. Wow. And short days. To warm it all the way up to zero. To get it up to where it just <laughs> wouldn't quite freeze. Wow. And there's problems with concrete with that. Carburization and different things. So you can't, you, it doesn't solve every problem. but. Huh. But I, I was kind of a hit there because I brought a pair of cork boots with me. Oh. And so you're framing, you're sheeting a roof and you get there in the morning and your sheeting is covered with frost. Huh. Oh. I put my corks on, jumped up there and I could pack sheets and get oh, up there. Wow. And they thought that was awesome because the boss, I was working for a guy named Bob Edwards and 
he tried it with his golf shoes. So that tells you the difference between his mentality and mine, right? Yeah, like track spikes or something. Yeah, like track spikes. And he was a, a school teacher who decided he could make more money as a contractor. Um, yeah, that was Bobby. Met a couple good guys that worked for him. But it was just funny that you always had to deal with cold, windy weather in the winter. So would, would there be like a burn barrel or something yes. like fire on the job site? Oh, man. Yes. Um, I worked for a guy named Christensen. Can't remember his last name. One of the last guys I worked for before I moved to Las Vegas. And we took a job up the South Fork of the Shoshone River. Shoshone, Shoshone. South Fork ran up one side of the Buffalo Bill Reservoir. And it was a nice big house. And the wind would always howl down, down the river up there. And so went to work one morning and it was... I don't know, 25 below or 30 below. And the wind was blowing probably 50 miles an hour. And I distinctly remember bundled up two pairs of gloves. I mean, all of your insulated coveralls and hats and everything. And you'd put on a pair of worn out cotton gloves and then a pair of new cotton gloves over the top. So you had two pairs of gloves on. And then you're trying to turn nails and nail by hand. I remember walking back and forth to the burn barrel, drop all the board ends in there, and sticking the head of my hammer down in that fire, mm. and it would get kind of black. The water would condense on it down there. It would get kind of wet. You'd pull it out. So I would have something warm to hang on to on my way back to work for four or five minutes. Okay. Wow. I could grab the head of the hammer for a little bit and get a little bit of heat out of there so I huh. could turn the nails. And I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say there were times when I was not sure I had hit my finger until I got back to the burn barrel and stuck my hands down and it'd warm up. And uh-huh. then suddenly I remembered, oh yeah, that finger's been hit. Jeez. So it was cold. I've still got a couple fingers that are sensitive to cold, probably a little frostbite. For sure. But so that sounds like a giant whine, doesn't it? That is not a whine. It was it was terrific. Yeah, and you it were was, happy to have a job. I and, was delighted. Yeah. And I was learning stuff. Mm-hmm. That was the main thing. The The pay was kind of subsistence level. What Do you remember what they paid you, like an hourly rate? Or do you, do you remember any numbers with that? I think when I got back there, I went to work at $6.50 or something. And when I left, I left a job that was, when I left five years later, the last job I had was paying 10 or 11 bucks. Seems not bad. Seems, not bad. Yeah. And I got to Las Vegas and a month and a, oh, I think maybe I was up to nine bucks back there because when I got to Las Vegas, two months after I got to Las Vegas or a month, I was working a job at 20 bucks an hour. Whoa. 100% pay raise by moving from Wyoming to Las Vegas. Holy smokes. Not only was it a 100% pay raise, but I was getting 16 hour days. Yeah. It was it was the end for a while of financial wow. anxiety. And that was and that was when you were starting there. That was before you really got yeah, yeah, you know I hit got stride, your, yeah. your your full toolkit, you know, yeah. and all your Yeah. Wow, that's really cool. Hundred percent pay raise overnight. Yeah. So you got to Vegas in January, and I remember mm-hmm. that because I actually remember that truck ride. And uh what was that like? Because Vegas, of course, is beautiful right then, and I, I yeah. you knew what you knew the wet summer was going to be hot. But do you remember just being so thrilled to like so, feel the sun at seventy degrees or yeah. whatever it was? And was there like a real honeymoon period with the weather for Absolutely. you? Absolutely. So I, I think you're conflating the truck ride. I left in January, came back and got you guys, and went back down there in March. Oh, maybe it was March. You're remembering riding down. In I March. remember a sunny day. A at sunny least. day riding down yeah. there. So when I went down there in January. My old white truck, the heater wasn't working. Hmm. Driving down, I, I when I left three weeks before, I had been working at thirty below, you know, middle of 
December, whatever, left first week of January inside the truck with my insulated coveralls on and packs and two pairs of gloves and my hat because there was no heater. And if I, when I was driving at highway speeds, there was just enough heat wafting up out of the dashboard because of the, the action of the air that it would, it would melt a little hole in the ice in the windshield. And I had an ice scraper on the inside scraping, got down through Green River and it started to warm up a little bit, went over the South Pass, you know, where the Mormon pioneers pulled their handcarts up over the trek and died just pretty mm -hmm. close to there, that Willie, Martin and Willie handcart companies. And by the time I got to Green River, it started thawing out. And by the time I got down, you know, towards the Utah border, it was warm. And by the time I got down to St. George, it was nice. Yeah. And it, it was it was a terrific honeymoon period, yeah. pulling in there the first week of January, and it was so nice. Yeah, I bet that was pretty uh, was nice. Yeah. Pretty pleasant. Roll the window down. and Yeah. I, I, I had no idea what was coming. But by, so worked in middle of December at 30 below and a wind, let, went down there in January, worked January, February, went back in March, sold the place, loaded the family up and got back down there in April. And by the end of April, it was working 105 above. Hmm. And, you know, by May, anyhow, you know yeah. the transition. Do you remember, you're not a complainer in general, but do you remember complaining about the cold weather and the hot weather? Or did you have a mindset trick in both of those extremes where you were just kind of like, I'm getting the job done? Do you, do you have any strong memories about like ha having issues with either no, of those extreme weather I, I conditions? Didn't have, I didn't have any issues. And I think that I, I have to thank my dad for that. Because, you know, getting back to growing up around here, wading in the mud and being wet and and stuff, it it just, I guess I just considered it just a cost of working. Yeah. You know, it was just part of, that's what it was. I visualized it just as part of working. Yeah. It wasn't separate from the work. It was part of the work. Yeah. And so, but I do now, I'm a whiner now. I can't, I, I, I softened up, man. I, it's amazing how, maybe this is just a human thing, but people and we can just kind of quickly acclimate mm -hmm. not that we're our bodies are used to it but you see other people dealing yeah. with rough weather and all of a sudden it's kind of like i guess this is just yeah. how it's done and next thing you know yeah you're kind of just dealing with the weather whereas you know sitting here it's a really nice day today it's probably 65 outside yeah, and perfect and when i imagine you know guys in phoenix let's say 110 today whatever it is mm -hmm. laying block mm -hmm. at one in the afternoon yeah <laughs> And I just kind of think like, I don't, I don't think I literally could do that, Man, you know, but, but hard. the truth is when you kind of are on these job sites and around other people, you, it comes with the territory and there's yeah. something that kind of can click in gear and you just get the work done. And physically you, I, I think you can get conditioned to mm -hmm. it like any other kind of conditioning. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, you look at, you look at runners, you look at the people that do those things mm -hmm. and they're conditioned. Their body has responded to it, made physiological changes. I know that when I first got to Las Vegas um, in the winter, I was working in T-shirts and shirt sleeves and everyone else was bundled up. Yeah. And then in the summer, they weren't struggling as badly as I was. Yeah. And it took about two years for me to get used to the heat. Yeah. And now anybody who knows me will tell you that I am vulnerable to cold. I've yeah. shifted back to where I still do okay with the heat. But yeah. I'm vulnerable to cold. There are some tips, just like the the layers of clothes and gloves in in Wyoming are heating your hammer head up. But in the heat, I mean, guys on hot 
job sites, roofing or block or whatever, they got huge hats. Yes. And it, I think that truly is like a uh, must-have tool, mm-hmm. big hat to keep the sun off of your head and shoulders. Mm-hmm. When I finally kind of got a big sun hat after being there for several years, I was kind of blown away mm-hmm. at how it changed everything. It felt yeah. like I was working in the shade all day. <laughs> and I was. You were. You're working under an umbrella. Yeah. I, I I didn't figure that out when I was when I was framing and working in Las Vegas. So on on the in the commercial construction side, which is where I started out down there, it just wasn't cool to wear straw hats at that time, mm-hmm. or it wasn't part of the culture, right? Yeah, bill hats, which are pretty much useless. Yeah, they are. You know, they what do they do? And we didn't we hadn't copied the Latino the Mexican culture of wearing long sleeve shirts, which is brilliant. Yeah, it keeps the sun off your body. You don't just get the the radiant heat gain of the sunlight on your skin. Yeah, we were doing none of that, and 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 so it just. I don't know. You stopped thinking about it. You yeah. just you just blocked it out and kept working. But there are ways, just yeah. like you're saying, to to make it better. Yeah, certainly. And drinking a, a lot of water goes without saying, but it's it shouldn't. You that you got to stay on top of it and kind of almost be drinking water as you know preemptively, mm-hmm. <laughs> even when yeah. you're not thirsty. If you're sweating, you need to be replacing that fluid with water constantly. And then in terms of the other trick, those uh, long sleeve shirts, I same thing. I didn't just kind of didn't make sense to me. And I yeah. saw these landscapers doing that thing. I guys, come on, get the, you, you want to feel that wind and, and then you'd try it once. And then especially yeah. if you get the shirt wet or just dump some water on you and it all that cotton holds moisture a little longer yeah. and that evaporation probably drops the temperature like 15 degrees on your mm-hmm. skin or more feels cool and you're now your arms in the shade so that there's something to that for sure and I, and I really after kind of experiencing that i was like wow that wish i'd have known that a year i mean ago. the Ar- arab cultures do the same thing right you know voluminous loose robes and white and yeah there's a reason for that but the problem was that the 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 construction culture, particularly the piecework framing culture, is a very cowboy, macho young man. Take your shirt off, stick yeah. your chest out, mm-hmm. kind of a a culture. And so they would, you, yeah. you just wouldn't hear of it, you know. And there's something about even just running or hustling around a job site and hats and wet shirts and things that one more thing to keep track of. By yeah. the time you maintain all that debris yeah, you yeah. could almost like get out of there an hour sooner so That's which right. one which one is better well so this is provoking some memories i didn't see anyone wearing straw hats except two guys i don't remember their names they were my age they were doing layout so they're walking around on slabs snapping lines and detailing plates and they could do it so they're moving slow yeah and but i i was stacking mostly up mm-hmm. off the ground crawling through trusses and a crawling through a truss yeah. you can't keep a hat on your head yeah it's just gone and so you forget about it and mm-hmm. you identify that's an annoyance and then you don't think of putting it on when you're down on the ground banging walls together and could mm-hmm. so yeah it's you know landscapers and you're running a weed eater you're doing things where you're a little bit less uh constrained yeah. it, it probably makes the most sense so the the most extreme case of this was john i don't remember john's last name i was stacking roofs for Nevada framers, Southern Nevada framers. I think that was her name. And I was stacking a lot of roofs. I had a little crew and, 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 and there was a guy named crazy John and he lived most of the time on the tract or often did slept in his Volkswagen. I'm remembering now he was so smart and all he ever wore was gym shorts. I mean, that's all he ever wore. No shoes, no shirt, no hat. Oh, sounds really smart. Yeah. Really smart. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, well, there were some other things. That he was good at numbers. He, he, and boy, could he plate. He was a plater. There you go. He was on, on a piecework basis, and he had a skill saw, and he had a set of bags, and he had gym shorts, and he lived pretty much on the site till payday, and then he lived somewhere else, and mm-hmm. I didn't want to hear those stories, and then he came back. But he was baked like a raisin, man, mm-hmm. and skin cancer being what it is, the way I understand it now, I've often wondered if John, who was probably 10 years older than I was, is still staying out in the sun. Yeah. Well, if he was a raisin, then he's a piece of beef jerky now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. If he's still kicking. As a kid here, logging in the summer, it gets hot here. It gets 103, 104, 105 mm-hmm. for a while. And logging is strenuous and it's up and down and you're fully dressed. You're covered in clothing that you're not wearing to keep cool. You're wearing to keep from getting torn up. Mm-hmm. And you have heavy leather boots on that come way up your leg, and and uh, so you're hot. Mm-hmm. And so I I was very used to drinking two gallons of water a day when I was logging. That's just what it took. I'd take two gallons of water and drink it. And I was used to being soaked with sweat and being, you know, the electrolytes electrolytes get out of balance. You get some muscle cramping, and you take salt tablets or whatever we thought we should do. But I would be wet from sweat most of the day. But in Las Vegas, you would drink. I would drink two gallons of water a day or so, mm-hmm. and never be wet. But rather, my shirt would just gradually turn white, mm-hmm. and the top of my Levi's and my bags, the belt, my leather belt would turn white, and the top of my boots would turn white, mm-hmm. and you would never really see any water there, mm-hmm. just because the desert was so thirsty. But water consumption was a big thing. Um, working in the desert in the Southwest is, is pretty brutal, but it's probably not as bad as in the tropics or Florida where the humidity is crazy high, because at that point, I mean, wear a hat or not, like you, you're not getting away from the humidity and the sweat. I, my my heart goes out to those guys. Amen. Ouch. You know that, that it's kind of a joke. It's hot, but it's a dry heat. Well, and that is a joke, and it's a little bit mean. It's it's you're just laughing at trying to rationalize high temperatures, but dry heat at least allows evaporation and that temperature. Yeah, so there's something to that. And in in the desert, if you go in some shade, let's say wherever it is, under even just a canopy, and you sit down for a second, get your heart rate down, you're fine. Yeah, like it's, yeah, yeah, you're better. fine. You can sit there in 115 degree heat, and if you're not like doing something, it's it's not a That's you're right. fine. That's right. But you cannot do that in Florida when it's even 95 and the humidity is 95. Like, That's right. You don't want to be in it at all. I, I played with the jazz band when I was a kid, and we did a tour. We started in San Francisco, and we played to Orlando, Florida, and back. Well, Disney World, Orlando, Florida, and back. We played 69 different gigs in 75 days. It was great. We played in St. Louis for the Jazz Society there, I think. And the power went out at the place we were staying. And I remember it was 95 degrees and 95% humidity, yeah. 90, 90, 95, 95. And it was like nothing I had experienced. It was just what you're talking about. You yeah. couldn't breathe. Yeah. All you could do was drip sweat. Mm-hmm. That's it. You just dripped sweat and couldn't breathe. And I, I'm glad I wasn't trying to piecework stack some roofs. Yeah. Well, it's amazing how much work is able to get done across all of these extreme weather, uh, climates and locations and, you know, even in terms of cold, Wyoming's pretty cold, but there's places that are colder. Way worse. Way worse. And they, they build and guys get out in it, and it's That's just right. sort of like another day at the office. And That's right. It's pretty impressive. All right, so I've got a couple more stories of weather conditions. In Wyoming, wind is a thing. It's a real thing. Mm-hmm. In Las Vegas, the wind is a thing just because it's like standing in front of a blow dryer set on high temp. You know, it's a hot wind blowing, and it's blowing sand. But I remember sheeting a roof with three-quarter-inch plywood 
and walking down the roof and grabbing a sheet by the end, holding it from the on the four foot width and holding it up and the wind would hang the eight feet up in front of me. Wow. And I cool. walked up the pitch with the wind holding that three quarter inch plywood up in front of me by the end and I could get it down wow. if I was lucky. Real wind, you know. Jeez. It struck me as being so such an analog to the fire barrel in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. You know, where you would spend at least 20% of your workday walking back and forth to the fire barrel in Las Vegas on a hot day, you would spend at least 20% of your workday walking back and forth to the water jug, mm-hmm. just walking, dragging over there and bending over and sucking all the water out of that that you could yeah. and try and you hope nobody realized that you were drinking a little slower than you might. So you'd get a few more moments, mm-hmm. right? And then walking back and I worked for MS Concrete and Dennis Bunker, who was their big push, a very hard, productive, smart capricious, arbitrary man would scream at the top of his lungs, don't you drink any more water than you can sweat out. We don't have time for you to stop to take a leak. Wow. And he was only halfway kidding. That Jeez. was just that was just the, yeah. the family culture, right? Gosh, man, that's crazy. Yeah, but that's construction. And that's the other side of the romance of construction. People think, oh, I want a job where I can work with my hands and look back yeah. at the end of the day and see what I accomplished. I want that satisfaction. Yeah. Well, the other side of that satisfaction is that sort of a prison, militaristic, in-your-face, aggressive expectation by too many people. Yeah. And just because that was then, it still exists now. Construction is a hardball, fairly brutal world. Yeah. And you got to brace yourself for that. Especially when you're in a a job, let's say, or a a job like a job site that's commercial where there's yep. not some homeowner where, where you have to be kind yep. of delicate and you're a little bit like yeah. hold somebody's hand where it's, it's truly just a bunch of businessmen and foremen yep. and huge dollars. And you are just kind of an ant and yep. they don't care if you get squashed or that's right. leave. It's just, you're, you, man, you're just, talk, part, you're just part of the machine, man. Yeah. And you better work faster. I'm, when I was in Phoenix, I only did one job that storage thing, which we made videos of where I felt like I was getting a look at some of the, commercial guys and this was in the summer and i was leaving the house like most commercial contractors like at 4 a.m mm-hmm. and you go to a gas station in phoenix at 4 a.m on a in the summertime and it's like hustle bustle <laughs> there's there's so many trucks and everybody's like in line at the ice machine and you can just see people gearing up almost yep. like you know going to war and yep. people come up to the counter with like 14 bottles of gatorade and Yep. all their lunch and everybody's got the sun's still down and it's dark but people are buying big blocks of ice and there's it's, it's right. pretty neat and and all of the, and all of these people like we talked about long sleeve shirts and I, we didn't mention this but i wonder if neon orange separate from being oh. uh you know a safety orange a safety color also reflects heat a little better and it's probably not as good as white but i kind of wonder because I don't Everybody, know. every, I, I guess it's just the safety aspect. Yeah. Maybe it's a OSHA it, it thing. It is a safety aspect, but anything that's reflective has got to yeah. be better than absorbing. So same thing. Everybody that in this gas station, every gas station is as, you know, reflective as, <laughs> as a, as a neon sign. And, and I remember when I was that summer, when I was doing that for several months, just kind of really not so much being in awe, but really tipping my hat to the fellows who were doing this for a, a paycheck, possibly, uh, meager paycheck, mm-hmm. certainly not living some luxurious lifestyle. So whatever they were getting paid, um, it was barely enough. It was probably barely enough. And all of these guys had families and kids just like I did. And I remember really thinking like, wow, man, this would be 
I, if I if this was my day to day, I would be, you know, I, there there wouldn't be a lot of romance in it, like you said. That's I would right. be I would be thinking, oh man, I'd love to uh, go in that office yep. and like. <laughs> Look yeah. at a computer screen. I want to be the guy riding around in that pickup. But you know, the, the grass is always greener because yeah. I, I, to be honest, I actually was, I was loving that summer and being at this gas station was really energizing. And a lot of the guys there, I could see had a, a similar energy and it felt, it was really fun. So, yeah. you know, you can't say there's, there's no value to no. any of that. The, the comment, I guess that I'm left with is that the grass is always greener it and is. whatever you're doing. That's it's got its pluses and minuses. So I had an interesting conversation last night to this point exactly. Well, at least tangentially, with Paul Weller, who we're going to have on here. Paul Weller is a house mover. His his niche for a lot of his uh, productive life, and I say productive life. He told me he's just retired, and he also told me it's not all it's cracked up to be. Mm. So I I used Paul probably four times to jack up or move structures, and then he used me maybe five or six times when he was up here in Douglas County doing something, he knew that I could engage with him and get my hands on equipment and handle concrete. And so we worked together quite a bit and I have nothing but love, trust and respect for Paul Weller. He's just sharp. He's one of those guys that would have been a a well-regarded structural engineer if he would have gone down that path. Uh, He, I just like, he's just great. But he was saying last night when I was talking to him and I was talking, we, we had a nice conversation about different things. It's been five years since I've spoken with him. He was saying now that in the rearview mirror, he realizes that that work that he was doing, that we were doing, was fun. He realizes now, thinking about it, that the the days that were grinding and the jobs that were spooky and the the checks that were hard to collect and whatever else, that that all added up to fun. Yeah. And now, from a retired position, having sold out of his equipment, he he misses the fun yeah, aspect. I believe that a hundred percent. There's like an exhilaration and a you're pushing yourself and testing yourself and yeah. the conflict and the yes. the successes, all of it amounts to accomplishment. Yep, it does. And without maybe accomplishment in your life to that extent, it would certainly feel like something was missing. That's for sure. I think it's it's kind of the same kind of fun it would be to get on a really intense roller coaster and not buckle the seatbelt. I don't know about that. but I mean, it's fun, yeah. but baby, you could fly out of this seat and the fun would stop mm-hmm. because it's only fun for he and I talking about it because we kind of survived the experience, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't mean necessarily literally physically survived, but financially got to the end of it intact. Yeah. But if in the middle of it, you flew out of the seat yeah. you know, and hit the ground there probably would be people who would be talking to each other after sharing calamity yeah. who would not think that fun was a way to describe it. Well, maybe this is better identified as risk because yeah. taking risk is fun and is a thrill and a life or a job or a career with no risk. Right. Oh my gosh, kill me. Kill me. That would be... Just shoot me. Yeah. It's like you, it's, you know, showing up and let's say a a factory or a conveyor belt, like put that lug nut on for all all your life. Whereas you, you take, you take some risk and you unhook your safety line, let's say Mm -hmm. metaphorically in terms Mm -hmm. of paycheck or Mm -hmm. lifestyle or whatever, you know, your risk is fun. It's fun to take risk. We spend billions of dollars for the opportunities to experience risk, right? Yeah. And we make heroes out of the people that experience risk in extreme sports and, and, Mm -hmm. and, but, Circling it back around to the the gritty reality of construction, I worked with guys when I was in Las Vegas who were the age that I am right now, whose job every day would be be on their 
either squatting down or on their knees, dragging a two-by-four, rotting gravel to grade under an endless procession of house slabs. Endless. Mm. And they were 61, 62, in the white, fluffy, in the white long sleeve shirts. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they could keep a straw hat on their head. That sometimes they couldn't. Mm. But man, the romance was long gone for those guys. God, that's like the worst of all scenarios it to is. play your cards in a way that at the end of the day, you're you're not that you're still in that spot. You know, maybe yeah. that's a spot a guy would start his career is yeah. doing that. You don't want to end your career there either. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, any last minute comments on the weather? It's it. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'll share one. And I saw this when I was doing that storage thing and it was the first time I paid attention to it. And that is how expensive the weather can be. Oh. And we, I was doing the, the, the meat of that project within the summer and, we had two or three big monsoons that flooded the site. It cost me a lot of money, but I, I was paying attention to every other dirt work kind of job site. And there was a big commercial one at the airport, all these open underground utilities that got flooded same weekend as mine. And holy smokes, I was just thinking, oh, wow. So this weather event comes through. It's just weather, nobody's fault, except somebody's got to pay the bill Somebody pays. for putting it all back together. Yeah, And that happened to me. I, I don't know what it cost me, maybe like, three or four thousand dollars total right you know that's a lot of money and i was not happy but i was just imagining and visualizing for the first time builders developers contractors who get unlucky and have weather cost them tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars and now you got something to complain about now you got something and you got attorneys to pay yeah because now we're trying to assign whose contract covered them against unforeseeable weather events and whose contract didn't and yeah. somebody's gonna pay yeah that's it's amazing and and Jeez, it's like one of those things you just don't think about. You know, it's raining. It's like, oh, that's annoying. I can't go yeah. to the lake, or, or it's all oh, my my uh, whatever my my coat got wet because I left it on the back porch. Yeah. And it's like that's a bummer. Yeah. But talk about someone whose job site gets ruined, or materials, yeah. or like a pallet of concrete, or whatever it is. So I don't know how interesting concrete stories are in weather, but I I have I have two and one illust. Well, they they both are to the same point. I. I was, there was a poor crew and it, I was there checking grades or something and the truck backed up to a driveway and I happened to check my watch when the concrete slid off the end of the chute and dropped onto the subgrade. Boom. And I checked the time and 20 minutes later, that's two zero, 20 minutes later, those guys were out walking on that concrete, spraying cure on it. Oh my Done. gosh. In place, rotted, bull floated, jointed, troweled broomed and sealed in 20 minutes whoa 20 minutes so wow the quality of that concrete had to be terrible it probably if you if there would have been a brake test on it it probably would have broke about 900 pounds yeah. instead of 3500 because the reaction was cut off so quickly was there not some kind of like retarder or something they could have put in there to control that maybe they maybe they essentially did. not then e- either way it got hard it so. got hard not for that little job <laughs> oh. not then not no it just Somebody ordered the mud, and it was probably a hot load. Yeah. The batch plat batched it on top of two or three yards of mud that just came off another job, and some of that may have come off another job, and so that accelerated reaction was seeded into that yeah. batch, and it was going off. You couldn't stop it. Gosh, that's funny. So another job, much bigger, a very elaborate house, lots of radius outside building lines and lots of elevation changes. Tricky setup, high-dollar house in Spanish trails, yeah. actually. And the engineer trying to forestall that had specified that the concrete was never to get above 80 degrees. Mm. And we were, they were taking samples for brake tests and they were 
they were testing the temperature of the mud. And if the mud got over 80, you couldn't pour it. And so the mud was being batched with ice. They would just throw 50-pound blocks of ice into the trucks and hammer that in for the water to try mm -hmm. to drop the temperature. There are better ways to do that now. Mm -hmm. So here's what happened. We got it laid down. We got it sealed up. We're waiting to put the machines on it, going to power trowel it. Oh, the top is going off. The top is hydrating. It's crusting a little bit. Got to get the machines on there because the top's getting hard. Threw the power trowels out there, but the mud was so cold underneath that it wasn't setting up at all. Whoa. So now you're setting power trowels on a five or a six inch slab that is soft as the moment it came out of the truck underneath and the top half inch is as hard as this table. And you're trying to trowel that to get it smooth. And what you're doing is just pushing big valleys and it was like a skate park. Whoa. It was, I don't know how that ended up. I was working for MS Concrete at the time. I don't know if there was a tear out. I don't know what, I don't know whose fault that would have been, but it was an unworkable engineering solution. Yeah. He put you in a corner. It was just a corner you couldn't get out of. Now yeah. today you could, you could mist the, the mm -hmm. site. You can spray on, I, what's it called? Confilm. You can spray on the top to keep the top from crusting. So it'll mm. kind of lay there while it all catches up. But at the time, a little breeze came up, 115 degree morning, and it was a wreck. I'm not wow. even interested in knowing how it turned out. So weather is expensive. Yeah. All right. Well, put your comments in the stories. I have, I have a feeling you guys have some uh, pretty relevant anecdotes to yep. this. Thanks for tuning in thanks for supporting our channel thanks for leaving comments on this and our main channel and we will catch you next time